Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest was in the incredible Derek Comedy, has a host of TV and movie appearances, wrote two novels, and hosts the podcast Stay for Dinner with DC Pearson. That's him. DC Pearson is here. How's it going, dude? Hey, George. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror? I think my history with horror began with watching uh, the beginning of the TV movie or TV miniseries uh, Stephen King's It from the 80s at a sleepover. And then uh, it being so scary that we all turned it off after the first 10 (laughs) minutes and acted like we weren't scared. And then about 20 minutes later, made the kid's mom whose sleepover it was call my dad and have him come pick me up because I was too freaked out. (laughs) A tale as old as time. Yes, exactly. So I've kind of, I think like a lot of people my age, I had a kind of push-pull relationship with horror movies as a kid. Like, you know, we would go to Blockbuster and I would kind of brave a trip down the, uh, horror movie aisle to, you know, see all the different cool, scary covers and think like, that must be the scariest movie in the world and like, you know, freak myself out. But it often had more to do with imagining the content than actually experiencing it. You know, we we were mostly watching like age appropriate stuff, I think at that point. (laughs) But I had kind of a kick when I was in middle school of starting to get into like the Sam Raimi, like Evil Dead movies and Texas Chainsaw Massacre by director Toby Hooper, which of course we'll get to in a second. So I had a little bit of a a, a kick with horror of, of getting like pretty into it, but I never, I, I never became that just like died in the wool horror person. It's always been a part of my I, media diet as opposed to the, the main course, but a lot of things that I really like have horror elements or, or sort of share certain horror elements. And also a lot of the horror that I like shares certain elements as well. And I, I think I really love, particularly as a grown up, I think I really love the sort of like social commentary of, of horror or realizing the sort of the way it reflects our experiences and, and the way that there are, are certain things and certain topics that are very real and very grown up that can that can really only be, be explored or can be explored best through this genre, I think, is is really interesting and and cool. So yeah, so I think that would mainly be that, that's kind of my the my the brief history of my experience with horror. So first of all, I just want to say that as many times as it's been a similar story with a guest, in that you know I had a very similar experience with horror growing up as well, but. You're the first person who actually also was the It miniseries that scared them off. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, for me, it was a school trip instead of a sleepover, but mm. I was uh, I was too scared to admit that I was uh, very, very scared. <laughs> so oh. I, I stuck it out and uh, regretted it for years later. But Oh, my gosh. You know. Absolutely. Yeah, it was weirdly, I don't know what your experience was like, but I almost think it would have been better if I would have seen it all the way through to the end. Like we sort mm-hmm. of, I think we stopped it right after um you know we obviously saw the very iconic like we all float down here kid getting dragged right. into the sewer scene 
And then, you know, it flashes forward and you're dealing with these kind of cheesy 80s grownups. But there's this really scary scene where the the main character gets his yearbook down off the shelf and then his bro- he sees his little brother's picture and the picture winks at him. And then, right. the, you know, yearbook starts, <laughs> you know, pulsing with blood. And that, I think, is when we were all like, uh, it, this is stupid. We should do something else. <laughs> um, this is actually dumb. We, we're bored. <laughs> but years later, when I was home alone, and we weren't technically allowed to watch TV during the day if we were like home without our parents during summer vacation or something. But I would still, of course, sneak lots of TV consumption uh, of during the day and then just feel massively, massively guilty about it. <laughs> and... One summer vacation several years later, but not that many years later, probably like four or five, eh, maybe more. I don't know. I was I was like maybe in late elementary school by this point or early middle school was like, oh, my God, it is on TV. I'm going to watch it and I'm going to like confront my fear. Just like the kids. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. Totally. I didn't even think about that. So <laughs> I watched it all the way through and something about getting to the end with the like giant spider and the whole thing like and partially I think this is just the resolution of storytelling and it's sort of built in but I do think getting all the way to the end and sort of having the kind of like big confrontation and a big spider, it just somehow kind of demystified the whole thing to me. And I think also too, I was maybe a little bit older. So you sort of see how things are a movie or in this case, a mini series. And that, that probably helps yeah. too, I think. So that, that robbed it of, of, of some of its uh, mystical power. So, when we were discussing what movie we were going to talk about today, both of the movies that came up were relatively straight ahead horror movies. And so I was curious mm-hmm. about how you feel about like horror comedies and if you like them or if they kind of take away from the escapism of watching a movie because you kind of just start analyzing it. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I think that horror comedies can be great. I mean, like, as I mentioned, I was, you know, the first kind of horror movie that I really adopted as my own was Evil Dead 2, which is pretty, you know, it's very funny on purpose, kind of beautifully over the top. And there are things about it that are really super scary. And then there's other Mm -hmm. things that are just genuinely funny on purpose. And so I really enjoyed that. I liked that blend and it was nice because it's like neither of those elements are apologizing for each other. And I mean, also I would say obviously very, very low on the capital H horror scale, but Ghostbusters was, as I'm sure for, for many of your listeners, like a super duper important influential movie to me growing up and was genuinely scary to me, you know, in addition to being silly and crazy and fun and, and, and over the top. Uh, I mean, even just the the opening right away when that librarian. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yes. So scary. No, absolutely. So I think that, that there's no reason that horror comedy can't genuinely be scary in addition to, Mm. to being funny. But yeah, I, I would say like, I, I was drawn a little more to when I was thinking about this, a little more to just trying to think about like, even though horror is not, as I said, like the sort of the, I guess, kind of main course of my movie diet, what are, you know, actual horror movies that I'm really drawn to? Yeah, I, I think I just like the idea of, of trying to explore like, okay, where do horror and my tastes overlap? What's right. the Venn diagram? Is there a particular subgenre that you find yourself gravitating towards, or is it mostly just as long as it's exploring something in an, like an interesting way? 
Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I I wouldn't say there's necessarily one subgenre. I mean, a, a really big, important kind of like actual pure horror movie for me at the age when I was first getting into horror and had kind of that kick was Halloween, which is obviously kind of the seminal, you know, kind of arch slasher movie. Right. And I would say also, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I, I really enjoyed at that time and and did definitely like I liked the story of it and how it was made and thought that was really interesting. But also there's kind of the weird based on a true story kind of urban legendy stuff around it and, and all Very those different cool, things. Yeah. And also it just felt kind of culty and, and fun and not something everybody knew about. So I, I don't know exactly what the through line would be or if there's a particular subgenre. Cause I do like, I, I have liked a good slasher movie. Like I saw you, it's a movie you've already done and I'm not surprised cause it's so great. But the, um, the strangers from like 2008, oh, was yeah. it 2008, great. 2007, maybe so great. good. Oh, so good. And and then in more recent years, I feel like horror movies with a, a strong element of social commentary, like Get Out or Us, I've found really incredible and very scary and and fun. I mean, I would even say as recently as, you know, the Best Picture winner from 2019, Parasite, I think has a ton of horror elements. And I think also an, one through line that I really like in a good horror movie that Parasite definitely has is when it's not steeped in a horrific feeling the entire time when there's a sort of slow descent in in mm-hmm. there and you could kind of you kind of could start in a place where it's like this movie could kind of go a number of different directions. I I, I think that's definitely something that I I really enjoy. Another horror movie that I recently loved that I did think about potentially talking about was The Invitation from a few years ago. So So good. good. I just watched it too. And my friend Darcy has been on my on my case to watch it since it came out. She's a huge fan of Jennifer's Body as well, which that director's uh, also directed Jennifer's Body. And so Mm -hmm. she's been really, really pushing me to watch it. And I finally did. And it was as incredible as she said. Yes. And yes, just Karen Kusama. Oh, my God. So good. It's brilliant, brilliant movie. And and again, kind of an interesting there's an element of sort of social satire to it and living in LA I definitely identified to basically for people who haven't seen it I mean it, it deserves its own whole episode hopefully somebody will do it but but yeah, I think it will is takes place at a sort of like party in the Hollywood Hills and it's kind of playing this on this idea of like going to a party at your maybe it's your ex's place or encountering your ex at a party and they kind of have this whole different life and it really makes you think about stuff and also how far your your like willingness to deal with weirdness because you don't want to be <laughs> awkward about yes, it like exactly God. Yes. Yes. It's it's great. And and that's totally. it's just so relatable. And you're just like sitting there like, how long would I stay oh. if I was in the same shoes? And yes. you know, not only is, is it their ex, but it was like a tragic event is what yes. separated them. And yes. so there's really like this undercurrent of like who's gonna be the first to like show their hand of not being totally okay. Um, yeah. It's really, really great. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So, so good. It, it, if, if people haven't seen it, they should definitely check it out. I think it was on Netflix for a while. I'm not sure if it still is, but it's such a great movie. I'm glad you, glad you like that one. But yeah, yeah, so I don't know, I don't know what the, what the through line of all those would be. I guess all that to say, like, I'm a little bit all over the place. I don't have a particular subgenre of horror that I'm, that I'm necessarily drawn to. Nothing wrong with being well-rounded. <laughs> and so you mentioned your uh, predilection towards Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, mm-hmm. an incredible, incredible movie. 
And uh, the movie we're talking about today is Toby Hooper's, you know, a, a movie that came out down the road, pretty much based on the strength of Texas Chainsaw Massacre is what got him this job. Poltergeist from 1982. We usually talk about the movie's place in cultural context here, but it's kind of hard to truncate a movie like Poltergeist because it's not only hugely influential in terms of the genre, but it also managed to really permeate like American culture in general. I don't just mean like, oh, everyone and their mother has parodied it, even though they have. I mean, Seth MacFarlane actually dipped into this well twice, but it was the eighth highest grossing movie of the year with $122 million made that year. It was nominated for Academy Awards in sound editing, score, and visual effects, losing to E.T., a movie famous for its score and visual effects. And its uh, ability to deliver scares consistently, uh, it, it receives accolades from groups like AFI, the Chicago Critics Circle, Empire, to this day. And so basically my point is, uh, this is a big damn movie. <laughs> Yeah, and it's and it's also it's not it's and it's not rated R, right? It's rate is it right. what's, is it PG? Ooh, you know, it might or no be, not. I, I think I, that this is before PG thirteen. God, gotcha. yeah, it feels I, like it would have been a. It was a kind of a proto PG thirteen right. movie. It feels like. Right. Well, so yes, that that that's correct because I I just remembered that this I was reading about dark skies or night skies or whatever it is. I have it I have it down here in my notes, but night skies elements of that. Uh, got incorporated into Gremlins, which is one of the movies that basically created the PG-13 rating along with Indiana Jones. So there you go. That's the timeline as far as, as, gotcha. far as that Yeah, goes. I love, I will say like, I, that is weirdly like where I, I think I have extremely PG-13 tastes still to this day. I don't know what it is about me, but there is something about like, I'm not super into gore. I, you know, I, I, I'm fine with it. It's okay. And especially, you know, if, if well used, you know, I am a grown up. I swear I do different things. <laughs> but like there is something about just that level of trying to scare or thrill an audience where you're not going into a realm where it couldn't be seen by, you know, a 12 year old kid with reasonably aware parents uh, that, mm. I, that I really like. I don't know. There's something about writing that line that that I really like and I, I think is cool. And in watching this, I sort of found myself appreciating that the movie's not just trying to scare you in one way and say, okay, here's right. a bunch of blood and here's a bunch of, you know, whatever. It's, yeah, it's, it's not just shocking. It's accessing all of these different scary mm -hmm. things I thought was really neat. But yeah, I agree though. In, in uh, especially rewatching it, I hadn't seen it in a few years, but my... I think my way into Poltergeist also plays a lot into why I, I love it so much. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, um, in a suburb very much like the Arizona suburb that I believe Steven Spielberg himself grew up in, and a suburb not quite as lush as as this one in this movie, but you know, pretty similar, a kind of like prototypical American southwestern or western um, suburb of the the seventies and and eighties. And I'm pretty sure I came across it in. I was aware of it, I think, for a long time, but actually watched it in one of those again, one of those kind of like, oh, it's summer and my parents aren't home, and I'm looking at the TV Guide channel and seeing that. Poltergeist, it's this movie that I've heard of and I, I've seen the cover of probably at the video store is going to be on in like 22 minutes. So I better, 
you know, really quickly make my mac and cheese for lunch and, and, <laughs> and settle in. And even before that, I had a couple of like movie books that I had inherited from my parents because this was before IMDb and they were definitely from a time before IMDb where if you liked movies at all, you probably had like one or two or three big, thick books of just sort of being like, here's all the movies and would kind of a thousand you know, talk and one about movies. You exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I can't remember exactly what, which one of those books featured a, a, a poltergeist spread, but there was this, I remember there was this, like, I remember it being black and white, but photo from poltergeist and looking back at the actual movie, it's from the scene in the sort of actual climax of the movie where Joe Beth Williams, the mom, is trying to, you know, re- is reaching out and trying to keep her kids from being sucked into the the other side, basically, and their their closet has become this kind of howling Lovecraftian maw. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she's, and it was, it's also, I'm sure it wasn't a still from the movie, like it was a production still where clearly right. there's an actual photographer to the right of the camera, you know, taking this picture. And so it wasn't great quality. It wasn't, I don't even know if it had all the finished like special effects but there was just something about seeing basically this silhouette of of, of this woman in this football jersey reaching out for these kids and this thing and it was just so evocative and even to the point where for a long time I didn't understand and I think part of this was just the quality of the picture like Joe Beth Williams is kind of weirdly in silhouette or she's like backlit so you couldn't really even see that she was like a a human, it almost looked like maybe she was part of what was scary about it. And there was this weird kind of like nightmare creature reaching out (laughs) for these kids, but for some reason had a football Jersey, which you think would make it not scary, but somehow made it more (laughs) scary. And so it almost like hardwired, you know how, when you're a kid, a movie can be your favorite movie before you see the movie. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. It, It was a little bit like that where I was already like the pathways were laid in my brain for liking poltergeist from just looking at that image and going like, Oh my God, I'm so freaked out by this. I have to (laughs) not stop looking at it. And so then when I finally did watch it, I obviously figured out, okay, it's not everything, you know, it's not exactly how I had imagined it in, in my head, but it's just playing on all of these really amazing childhood fears. And looking back on it now, having the weird fraught relationship that I did with watching TV during the day where it was alternately all I really wanted to do with these like summer vacation days when I didn't have to go anywhere and there was nobody else around. But I also felt really guilty because I knew that I wasn't supposed to. And also I had this kind of idea of what summer vacation was supposed to be in my head. And even though I was a very indoor kid, there was a part of me that knew every day of summer vacation. Like, I think you're supposed to be going around and like (laughs) getting in Tom Sawyer, like adventures, but you're not, you're just sort of, you know, sitting and, and, and watching TV endlessly, Mm -hmm. but you love it. And it's great. So even in that, like the, the very fraught relationship that this movie has with television, I think was kind of very effective on me in the fraught relationship that, that, that I had with it. I don't know. There's so much. I'm sorry. I'm, I, yeah. I, I, I've, I've, uh, it, it, so that was kind of my initial experience with it. And in revisiting it a few times over the years, I still, my love for it has not diminished. And I, I find new things when I, when I go back to it. That's awesome. And yeah, I mean, that scene, I think it really just, it, it there's just so much like pathos coming off of that like scene where it's like this, I, you know, you say you can't really see it's her, but I still think that like, even just the, like the posture of like her reaching out to grab them. And uh, I, I think that that's a, a really interesting choice for them to use that still as the one to be in this movie. But I think it, it would, it's an effective choice as well. Yeah, totally. Uh, and 
this movie, it's also managed to stay culturally relevant because there's an interesting debate about uh, the creative credit for this movie. And now we're here to celebrate it. And so I don't want to dwell on this controversy too long, but I am curious about your opinion on it. And obviously, if we didn't mention it at all, I would hear about it. So <laughs> for people who aren't familiar, basically what it boils down to is uh, the studio came begging for a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was a huge hit. And Spielberg wasn't really interested in directing a sequel, but didn't want to have another Jaws 2 situation. So what he did was he decided that he would write the treatment uh, and he would pick a director. And so he wrote this treatment called Watch the Night Skies, and he asked Toby Hooper to direct it. And Toby, at this point, had directed a handful of independent movies, including The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is what Spielberg uh, was drawn to. But he hadn't done any studio films yet. And he didn't really love Night Skies, which was the script that emerged from this treatment. And so what he did was he took elements from it and he pitched Spielberg on Poltergeist instead. And at this point, other elements from Dark Skies were being fleshed out into E.T. and then a little pieces were going to Gremlins as well. So Spielberg agreed to produce Poltergeist for $11 million and Dark Skies was shelved. Um, but the problem arose when media outlets like Newsweek and Time Magazine started calling 1982 the summer of Spielberg. Uh, and obviously the studio leans into it because that's a very marketable name and Spielberg <laughs> is huge at the time. And this eventually erupts into such a fervor that the DGA had to get involved. Spielberg was apparently on set in his producer capacity an outrageous amount of the time. Um, and he was giving interviews saying stuff like, Toby isn't really a take-charge kind of guy. If a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would nod in agreement, and that became the process of collaboration. And so this sort of lit a fuse of people saying that Spielberg was the one who was really directing it, kind of like Kurt Russell in Tombstone. Now, thankfully, in more recent times, the majority of the cast has come to Toby's defense while still agreeing that Spielberg obviously had influence. I mean, that much is undeniable. But And there are, of course, outliers in terms of the crew defending Toby. But I'm curious what you think about just like this controversy surrounding it, if you if it affects your opinion of the movie at all, just kind of uh, what you think about it in general. It doesn't affect my opinion of it, I do think it's very interesting, and I think questions of of authorship are are always really interesting. And I, I think that they obviously get really sticky when you talk, particularly about art that's so inherently collaborative, like like the filmmaking process. So I I, I don't you know obviously I, I wasn't there, so I can't say. I mean I think it's indisputably Spielbergian genesis, and and mm-hmm. many. Spielbergian touches throughout and just is sort of steeped in that. And that's one of the things that I love about it and respond to about it is it's kind of steeped in that 80s Spielbergy, you know, suburban, right. but with a with a layer of mystery or science fiction or, you know, suburbia. What's behind suburbia? That's always been very appealing to me as somebody that that grew up in that kind of environment and had a big imagination and and was kind of really drawn to stories like that. It's undeniably of a piece with um, things like E.T. And obviously it's so interesting that they came out the exact same summer and we're all kind of born of the same post close encounters idea is is really, really interesting to me. And, And Night Skies is definitely one of those really fascinating kind of like lost projects that you always hear about and and come back to and is super duper interesting because it's basically like what if there had been et but he had uh sharp teeth and was scary right um (laughs) is very interesting 
scarier depending on who you ask there you go <laughs> yeah that's right i i don't know it's 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 tough to say like who literally directed the movie obviously right. one of the things that the directors guild of america exists to do is like protect the director and protect the director's right. sort of credit and also protect the idea that there is a sole person at the helm who has the job of director and i mm. think as as Somebody who's I've never directed anything, but somebody who's been involved in various kinds of filmmaking processes. I think that's super important and cool. And even the fact that sometimes they're maybe a little bit of a stick in the mud about it. That makes sense because they were kind of forged out of this era where studios were being like, whatever, I can get you a million directors tomorrow. You know, who do you want? Right. Throwing a <laughs> Rolodex at you and just being like, go make the the picture basically in a, in a producer driven studio driven system. So I, I, I get where they're coming from in, especially in, in wanting to defend and say that like Toby Hooper is the capital D director and he like authored this movie. But I think it's also undeniable to say like, yeah, Spielberg was clearly very involved in the process. He co he co wrote it. He clearly co-conceived it. There's a lot of, I was reading like, you know, stuff about there's, there's arguments about how much was he responsible for the storyboards? How much was Toby Hooper responsible for the storyboards? And then ultimately, if you look at the movie, you go like, this is super Spielbergy. There's constantly, right. you know, people that giving the, uh, the famous, you know, Spielberg look or whatever it's called, right. where you're off sort of staring distance. kind of <laughs> off. Yeah. And the camera pushes in and it's extraordinarily effective, but other movies have that that weren't directed by, by Spielberg. That doesn't mean they were directed by Spielberg, uh, you know, but I do, I, yeah. I could imagine, you know, obviously this is, is Spielberg at his kind of most huge, as you were saying, him as the biggest cultural force uh, in, in, in movies. And I'm sure he was really feeling himself. And I'm sure that when <laughs> things come came up on set and Toby Hooper was kind of probably hesitating because he was like, Spielberg is my boss. Effectively, he hired right. me. Uh, that he yeah. was being a little defer, you know, he was probably deferring to him a little bit, which is understandable. And I do think you get in environments specifically on, you know, especially on like TV shows and, and different and other types of processes that are filmmaking processes, but aren't literally when you're making a film that there can be at, you know, video village where everybody sits in their little director's chairs. Sometimes there can be a little bit more of a push and pull than, than just literally a guy sitting in a chair with a megaphone saying how it is. And yeah. it wouldn't surprise me that Spielberg would avail himself of that. And I don't think that's probably the only movie uh, hardly where that kind of thing has ever taken place, but I don't think it diminishes Toby Hooper's role any. Cause I, cause I, th I think we, we both read a lot of the same stuff. A lot of the cast has credited him with being very hands-on. And if they had a question, yeah. he was the person that they went to and whatever, which I think is great. And I, I don't think that there's, I don't think you need to say like Sp Steven Spielberg secretly directed this movie to put it in part of in, in a Spielbergian universe. And, and just as somebody that's also a big fan of like, music and musicians working together in different collaborations. I think it's, it's cool when you sort of have projects where it's like, yeah, that's not that person's project, but it is kind of in their world and it is sort of secretly yeah. kind of one of their projects I think is cool. Um, I'm not yeah. as hung up on exactly who authored it, but I could also understand if, 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 if I'm Toby Hooper, I would definitely feel differently, but I, in no mean, I, I by no means want to take any of the actual directing credit away from him. It seems like he really yeah. did. He was the director. You know what I mean? It also seems like he had a producer that was very hands-on and a writer that was very hands-on. That's not that uncommon. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that 
first of all, everyone said that Spielberg was on set a lot. And so if your producer is not only looming on your shoulder, but it's also your first studio movie and that producer is Steven Spielberg, of course you're going to do a lot of what he says. Yes. But I I think you can still feel Toby as well in a lot of the darker moments and in some of the humor that really reminds me of Chainsaw 2. So while No Man is an island and there's absolutely undeniably an Amblin sheen to it, as far as I'm concerned, Toby Hooper is the director. And I think that it's, it's really unfortunate that, you know, I, I, when I was reading like a a bunch of the trivia and stuff, people like, it was literally saying like director Steven Spielberg. And it's just like, oh man, poor Toby. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, it's, it's a bummer. I think it's one of those things where it's like, it's not just a trivia fact that Toby Hooper is the director of this movie. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's real, you know, it's, it's a, it's a real thing. It's a real credit. These credits are what they are for, for a reason. And so, in addition to Toby's work directing, the movie stars Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams as Steve and Diane Freeling. Craig T. Nelson is, of course, coach and Mr. Incredible, so another two great credits there. And they live in a planned community called Cuesta Verde in California. Steve is a successful real estate agent developer who works in this community. That's why he lives there. It's kind of like if you've seen Arrested Development, similar sort of situation. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Diane looks after their children, Dana, Robbie, and Carol Ann. And the movie kicks off with uh, the Star Spangled Banner playing over a TV with static (laughs) on it, kind of encapsulating the movie right away. You know, it's got this pure Americana injection, which is particularly interesting when you kind of pair it with what's to come. And then, of course, you know, you get a cute golden retriever right away. You'd love to start a movie off with a cute dog. Although when it's a horror movie, it's about a 50-50 chance of it ending in tears. (laughs) I also I also think it's such a cool interesting time capsule. I don't I was never conscious and young en- enough or old enough or whatever at the time to remember them doing this, but I think for anybody younger than me, I feel like there's no way you would would recognize it as what they used to do at the end of the, like the broad, they, there used to be a, there used to be a broadcast day where like the TV would, the channels, cause you only had a few of them would be like, all right, we're done. That's all the TV <laughs> for today. To and, they would, <laughs> and they would literally sign off and there would be, I think this one is maybe, I don't know, maybe it's exactly a TV sign off or maybe it's a little exaggerated, but like would have this kind of, you know, they would play the star spangled yeah. banner or do whatever. And so to, to open with that, I think is so cool. Like you're saying a, the Americana factor B the fact that there's this, I think that the horror of TV uh, social commentary from this movie is a little bit overblown. I, I think in, in terms of how it's interpreted, but I, I, it's undeniable that that's part of it. And I do think there's something so cool when I was rewatching it this time to the idea that it's like the movie's ending with like the daytime is like signing off. Like, like the day that the, the world that, you know, is like signing off and now you're in effectively the, you know, you're in the nighttime, you're in the, the, the time when things go bump in the night, I think is so yeah, uh, cool. I agree. And I mean, it, it, it starts off with this and then gets pretty, pretty creepy right away right. because Carol Ann, the youngest child awakens and just starts talking with the TV set, oh, which is displaying yes. the static from after the sign off. And it's just such a great intro where like the family like slowly like wakes up and sees her doing it. And like, they're all like puzzled and, and you don't know what's going on. It's just a, a great unsettling way to start it off. So cool and and great performance and great direction. And it's the it's like the perfect thing where Caroline is not being spooky. Caroline's just being a kid. You know what I mean? And that's the spookiest thing of all is just seeing her very earnestly like, I'm just talking to a friend, but the friend is like a ghost that lives in the TV is... <laughs> 
So cool. Yeah. And uh, and there's a really great contrast, too, when it cuts to the next morning and there's, like, this cheery music playing. And it's like everything just seems a little <laughs> nicer in the daylight <laughs> as you explore this community, which, in addition to sort of the Americana of the Star Smiled banner playing, the community is kind of presented as, like, this platonic ideal, I feel like, with uh, two, two and a half children per family. And it's nestled in yes. this valley and, you know it's a bunch of dudes drinking beers and watching football. And they're like, just really hammering home this kind of idea of the all American family being the one that we're watching this happen to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, there are lots of little fun, you know, again, it's a Spielberg movie. It's not a Spielberg movie. You know, you can go back and forth, but the Spielbergian little humor touches here. And, and some of them, I think in the movie are, don't hold up that great or a little over the top, but like there is something to just having that little setting the table moment with all these little comedic vignettes of, of these kids yeah. messing with this guy who's coming toward the house and he's there and he's excited about watching the game. And you also then get the sort of like, you know, TV American family satire of like all everyone's TV obsessed <laughs> and they're all kind of, you know, locked in so much that they don't notice that like there's a beer that's been split open that is literally like beer fountaining into the middle of the living room um, right. <laughs> is is really fun and does kind of like I do think it it, it, it reminds you the, the going from the cold open to this really does remind you, I think, of the feeling of being a kid when something's scary in the middle of the night and then you kind of wake up and it's daytime and you can't really remember, but there's that little feeling in the back of your head of like, wait a minute, but it kind of gets yeah. washed over by just sort of like, oh, it's a normal day. My family's doing normal stuff. Yeah, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind at that point. And like you said, everyone is locked in on the TV and I think that this joke really works for me where it the TV switches by itself to Mr. Rogers singing, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it kind of feels like a threatening implication where you're like, oh my God, is the ghost threatening them? And then you find out that it's just the neighbor being close enough that the remotes work on each other's TV. Really made me laugh. But uh, there is a genuine eerie thing in that they find that the pet bird has died. Diane finds this and... I found that the this setup of like making Carol Ann just like very cute and making people not want anything bad to happen to her. I was like, the funeral for Tweety the Bird is really they do a great job with it. Oh, it's very yeah. touching. But also I think that there are sort of these paranormal undertones that reinforce what we've already seen, where, you know, maybe she's just being a kid when she says that Tweety doesn't like the smell of the cigar box, but also, you know, she was just talking to a ghost. Maybe she's speaking to his spirit. You know, who knows what's going on there? And, uh, you know, these ominous dark clouds are rolling in literally and figuratively. So, yeah, really interesting scene. Absolutely. And even kind of just the it's the sort of thing that makes you as a screenwriter jealous. But then also you're like, if I did it, would it work? Is it too on the nose? But you're like, oh, it's brilliant <laughs> where it's just, you know, you're kind of and this is what I really a big thing that I responded to this time around watching this movie is it's dealing with such incredibly fundamental themes. And I mean, most great horror movies are most great movies are, but it's really just dealing with fear of the unknown. What is scarier than the fear of the unknown? Nothing. Nothing. What is the, what is the ultimate unknown death? What if that ultimate unknown of death and the, the line between life and death was literally in your living room? Well, the truth of the matter is it is. It is. And it is. It is. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it absolutely is. And, and people 
die and it can happen in the blink of an eye in an otherwise normal, you know, life. And so I, I really think that that it's no coincidence, I guess, all that to say that this is what we're sort of opening the movie with. And this sort of like you're seeing a kid have their first experience with death, which is mostly if they're lucky, most kids first experience with death. And in many ways, part of why parents want to get pets for their kids is because eventually the pet's going to die. And then that's how a good kind of way to talk about this very scary idea of, of mortality. I guess it's probably not the main reason kids get their parents get pets for their kids. That's pretty morbid, <laughs> but it's gotta be, you know, on, on the list. It's top three for sure. Top, top three. three exactly. Sure. Um, and so seeing that and seeing basically this elemental, just normal, kid having a brush with the line between life and death, which the rest of the movie is going to be about. And then in the next scene, or, you know, not literally the next scene, but a couple scenes later, seeing Tweety's box being like overturned and upset by the bulldozer where you're just like, that's what's going to happen in the whole movie. Yeah. You know, oh, it's yeah. so, it's just so like, is, is, is very, uh, I loved it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It. It's great. That's all, I guess all that, that's all I'm trying to say. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're damn right. And Carol, and it seems like she might be having another brush with death relatively soon based on the way she is dramatically overfeeding her new goldfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something great about that, though. Like, I, I, in general, as my wife was pointing out when we were watching in the funeral scene, and my wife was like, okay, that's not how kids cry, which is true. There is, there is quite a bit in this movie of uh, kind of like Hollywood 50s kid as opposed to sort right. of like kid kid, <laughs> which, which is interesting because E.T., I think, does a great job of having a lot of kid kids kid in it as opposed to sort of a more idealized kid. But I think you're right. It's like we want the audience to immediately just give a huge, huge shit about Carol Ann. So having her being this kind of like prototypical child really, really does work. But also there is something so great and believable about the way that Carol Ann constantly snaps back to just kind of like, can we get in? Can we, can I get a goldfish? You know, I'm overfeeding the goldfish. I'm so excited about them. I kind of don't, it hasn't registered on me that things can like die. Um, is really, is great. I don't know. It's, it's, it's really funny and, 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 and does feel like kid, kid. Yeah. And we not only get this childhood experience with death, but we also in this moment get some real, I, I think authentic childhood fears demonstrated as well. Robbie, the middle child is, looking outside at this spooky tree in the window that was based on Spielberg's actual fear of a tree that looked like this outside his own childhood window. Carol Ann demands that the closet light get turned on as a nightlight. And so, you know, you have this fear of the dark. But it's also really incredible to me how much stuff pays off later with what they set up so quickly, including this, I mean, just monstrous clown doll. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I don't know what possessed the parents to get this thing but it is like the sequence in which they introduce it is really funny with these dramatic cuts, like framing him appropriately to let us really soak in how demented this thing looks. <laughs> and, and Robbie himself is also terrified of it with good reason. I oh, mean. yeah. And it's great, too, because it does at the beginning here kind of like throw your eye a little bit and you're thinking, OK, wait, is the clown going to be <laughs> spooky? Oh, no. OK, the, the kid's afraid of the tree. It's probably not going to be the tree. It's, it's probably going to yeah. be the clown. OK. And then I, th- <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even really fully process the idea that we're introducing the the closet, which is so pivotal with oh, we're going to leave the closet light on, you know, and that's mm-hmm. going to be that the closet's scary, but it's fine because the light's on. Oh, wait, it's not because it's a portal to, you know, this sort of like between worlds uh, region. Um, yeah. 
is so cool. And as you said, efficient is, is, is a very good word for it. Not only do they set up these sort of Chekhov scares, but they also do, <laughs> I think, a really good job of uh, establishing these characters as people that I don't I don't want anything bad to happen to them. I mean, Diane is a cool, fun mom. She's smoking a joint. Steve is a reassuring dad, and he's got a sense of humor, and the kids are cute and scared. And I feel like it's just a really great foundation of, yeah. like... This is that Spielberg prototypical American family, like you said. It it sort of scales out to the neighborhood having this sheen of perfection on it. But it's like you wonder how deep that goes and how quickly that can be torn apart by something bad happening to it. Which I think, you know, knowing what happens in this movie, it's really interesting to see how, like, perfect their lives are. In terms yeah, of a, like platonic ideal. And there's something, a couple things about about what you pointed out. I I, I agree. I love, and I I remembered a little bit, even not having seen the movie in years. You know, this scene with Joe Beth Williams and and Craig T. Nelson kind of sitting, and she's smoking a joint, and they're just kind of hanging out, and they're kind of talking about nothing, and just kind of blowing off steam at the end of the day, and it really has this feeling of. I don't know. It's, it's neat. Uh, I remember being a kid and kind of thinking like, Oh, weird. You're, you know, I don't know. You're just sort of like, is that, you know, what grownups do? They're just kind of not, they're not, I don't even know if it would have registered on me cause they're kind of not talking about anything. And it has such a great, it's like the best of sort of like seventies derived filmmaking where you just have these adult characters that are just kind of goofing off. It wouldn't surprise me if some of it was maybe a little bit improvised or whatever, where it's, you know, I mean, maybe not the camera, the camera work is very tight. Yeah, exactly. It's very, um, uh, which, uh, call forward to Mr. Incredible, I guess. Um, (laughs) but it's, it really is kind of, um, there's something so great about it. And I think, that in a very, not necessarily, but in a very, like, I guess I would say, like, if this movie were made today, I could imagine that scene being packed more full of direct sort of, but honey, remember you had that problem with your thing. Yes, well, this is my character's thing. But remember, your character has this thing where, yeah, I guess that's my arc that I'll have to whatever, you know, where it, (laughs) where it, is really remember the company is planning on moving the, f- exactly. the friggin the exactly. cemetery in a couple days under you know overtones as opposed to undertones where this mm-hmm. what this scene does is really just let us kind of like hang out with these people and just get to like them because they seem like yeah. normal people and 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 is is really really cool um I, I i really appreciated that in what is largely kind of a very hollywood you know commercial movie by by design i think it was really smart um, and then also too, I, I do think it's interesting with Craig T. Nelson with the dad where it's like, he's reading this, this Reagan, this kind of, it looks like a cheapo Reagan, uh, biography. Right. And there's a line, you know, Joe Beth Williams has a line later about like, you know, just remember when your mind used to be open. Okay. Go with me here for a second. And there's this right. feeling that Craig T. Nelson may be for a long time or maybe somewhat recently has kind of decided like, no, you know what? I need to like fully grow up and fully be this suburban guy and things are the way they are. And I have this job and I sell these houses, even though when he's, we see him selling the house later, he seems a little bit ambivalent about it, even though he finds out even before he finds out that it's literally built on a graveyard. And (laughs) there is something kind of cool about that. But again, it's not, it doesn't feel like an overtone where they need to fully ever make sure that they bring that in for a landing and it's it's in bold in the script and there's no way you can miss like okay we did his arc it's again all right. that kind of like 
undertony stuff that's so great. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it it feels very realistic. And there's it's a nice cut where they are asleep all of a sudden and they've fallen asleep with the television on. And again, <laughs> I, like you said, I, I agree that sort of these TV is evil uh, is overblown in terms of the way that people look at this movie. But there certainly are elements. It's of definitely it. there. Yeah. And I think one of the things that made me like that element of it more was in recent years learning. I can't remember what I was reading, um, but something about Spielberg where he's definitely was, I'm sure probably still is, but like was such a big TV fan. You know what I mean? Like he loved TV so much that he would like, he insisted that they back before DVR or the internet or anything like that, that like episodes of, and it wasn't even like some really cool show, I don't think, but like that some (laughs) episodes of some just like network drama or cop show or something be like taped and like brought to him overseas, like next day air when he was shooting something overseas. Gotta have his stories. Yeah. You know, and just kind of (laughs) like, there's something so cool about that. that You just imagine him being like a little kid in the fifties in his cowboy hat in front of the TV, just like, okay, what's going to happen this week on Gunsmoke, you know? And so I think it's like, I think I used to think of the TV thing in this movie as basically a a movie person saying, no, TV's bad. And I think in this, it's sort of him saying like, TV is very seductive. And and I think it, it works even better if you view it less as a thing about literally TV and more as a thing about kind of like, I don't know, you know, things that can kind of distract you from what's actually going on in your life, whether that's selling tract homes or or bad TV. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a really great framing of it. And it definitely is sort of the way that, you know, the fact that it, it, they've, they've fallen asleep with it on still and, and that it's sort of just there all the time as like this comfort for them. And, you know, certainly it's not quite the same now that there are 24-hour TV schedules. But when you had these sort of staticky sign-offs, you know, it's just like this warm tone. <laughs> it's, it's it's some nice white noise. You know? Oh, yeah. You could fall asleep to that. <laughs> Absolutely. And to, and to give Carol Ann some credit, I don't know if, if you ever did this, but like when I was growing up and you had the like standard deaf TV where if you didn't have cable or there wasn't a channel on, on that particular channel on your TV and it was just static and you got really close up to it, it looked cool and weird. Like it yeah. was a cool, weird <laughs> little, it looked like weird little bugs or something. Uh, it was really yeah, neat. A little, a little shock from the static. <laughs> Absolutely. That was a whole afternoon. <laughs> Absolutely. It was. And so Carol Ann, she wakes up during, after this sign off and she does go over to it and she gets real close and she's just like entranced by this tv as these whispering voices start up and suddenly a ghostly white hand emerges from the tv and i'm like look maybe the effects don't hold up perfectly in today's world but like if you put yourself in the time period not only is it pretty impressive it's still i think a fun jump moment when it first comes out yeah i I would agree with that i think that yeah this literal effect held up for me maybe the least of any of the ones in the movie but i agree with you it's there's just something about it that's so evocative and and cool. And yeah, I, I agree. Like in, in that initial moment of the thing coming out. And then I think ultimately the story point that it's trying to get across where this thing's going to come out and kind of like infuse itself into the home is, is very effectively done, I think. Yeah, yeah. It creates this like weird portal in the wall and it disappears right before an earthquake starts. And as the shaking subsides, Carol Ann does the iconic, they're here. Man, it's it's so easy to see why this became 
like a moment that people latch oh, on yeah, to. Absolutely. It's so ominous. It's like enough creepy stuff has happened that you're on edge, but like you know that there's so much more to come. It's really, I think, just a perfect sort of like tipping point of like, all right, end of act one. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And and in you know, watching it again, because it, it is tough to separate those iconic moments sometimes out from the fact that they are iconic moments and you sort of know, okay, here here it comes. But just watching it again, it's like her inflection is not spooky. It's context right. that makes it spooky. And the fact that she's a little kid and, and little kids, especially in horror movies, are going to skew creepy. But And we've now heard the whispers this time, too, because yes. the first time we didn't really hear it. And now we can hear that there is mm-hmm. something there, something that's talking to her. And we've seen this hand come out. Oh. And so not only are we like, OK, it was weird when she was doing it before. Now, the fact that there is confirmation that there's something there, I think, really just brings it to a whole nother level. Absolutely. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it's, it's, oh, it's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Construction on their new pool starts in the next morning. And this is the moment where the excavation disturbs the freshly buried Tweety. I, like we said, extremely appropriate and weird stuff starts to happen at breakfast. Uh, a drinking glass of milk just spontaneously breaks. It's a cool break too, where like the bottom just kind of like shoots out the spoon, uh, the spoons and like, they just start bending on their own. The dog barks at a spot on the wall where the hand went, um, and the chairs like move and stack themselves. And it's all stuff that's nothing harmful, but it's all very, very freaky. (laughs) And, and you, oh, absolutely. And I, I, there's something so great about, and again, I come back to this idea of like daytime and nighttime when you're a kid and nighttime sort of being the time where it's like, oh, I have to like, when I have to go to sleep, it gets pretty scary. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to fall asleep. Am I going to freak myself out? You know, what's going to happen? But when it's daytime, everything's safe and everything's normal stuff, creepy stuff happening in the day. If you can do it right, so much creepier than nighttime stuff. And I, I, I think this, this movie is a, is in this scene particularly is a big contributing factor to my belief in that there's something so much more eerie about this stuff happening at breakfast. Yeah. One thing that this scene does really, really well that I also love about it is that Diane seems to take Carol Ann's explanation of quote unquote, the TV people relatively seriously pretty quickly because I mean, how do you ignore something like these chairs moving? It feels much more realistic for her to take it seriously. But in a lot of lesser movies, I mean, the mom would just blame the kid to create cheap conflict. You know, they would get grounded and then, oh, I didn't do it. I didn't. I think that the fact that she is like, I don't see it, but like, it seems like maybe there is something here is, is a really great way to differentiate itself from other movies like it. I agree. I I, I think that there's, in terms of, again, like not layering on who these characters are, you know, who Steve and Diane are just from them saying it or other people saying it about them, but them, this sort of, we get the sense that Joe Beth Williams is maybe like kind of bored and is like, you know, she's probably somebody who feels like she was cooler before and, you know, she smokes pot and she's cool and she's relatively young, but she has, you know, a bunch of kids 
And you sort of, you get the sense that she's a little bit stoked just to have like a change of pace. You know, like there's almost, right. there's something that she, uh, exactly what you said, takes Carol Ann's explanation somewhat at face value and is just a little bit like, is definitely concerned and a little bit freaked out, but also kind of excited and just goes right into sort of exploring what this is and and yeah. and doesn't need to have an explanation right away, but is just kind of down to be like, I'm doing this thing all day and it's so, you know, it's kind of fun and... And there's, it's just a part of nature. It's something we full, don't fully understand is so wonderful. And she, she plays it wonderfully. And then I also have to give props to just the sort of practical gag of, okay, she pushes all the chairs in, then she leaves the room. Then all the chairs are just very clearly like pushed away from the <laughs> table. Then she pushes them all back in. Then she walks into the kitchen and in the same shot, comes back and they're all, you know, stacked in this crazy, physically impossible way in the same, you know, without a break that really sort of sells that, that gag is so cool. It's just, it's just that yeah. really simple filmmaking stuff that if it's the kind of thing that if you had a bunch of really committed friends in an afternoon, you could do it yourself. You know, you don't need mm -hmm. ILM. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that <laughs> is sometimes is the best stuff. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of her like being kind of excited about what's happening here. She replicates it for Steve and this kind of crystallizes that where <laughs> um, this I, I love, love, love the shot here where the chair is like really close and it's just gotten pulled and it's what's in focus and you just see the the reactions of the family out of focus in the background and like she jumps and and is like woohoo and Steve is shocked and like it's I just really loved that shot. Oh yeah, and this is also where your I'm not I'm no cinematographer but this is where I feel like your again not a Spielberg movie but Spielberg produced Spielberg written your Spielbergy like anamorphic lenses are really rocking out where it's sort of like the oh, yeah. the frame is really the image is really kind of wide and it's fuzzy around the edges and it just like nine times out of ten if you've ever been like that's really cool and Spielbergy <laughs> with a given image that's part of what is selling that and it's really just like rocking out at, at this at this point in the movie and I I, I love that thing. Because sometimes you see it done in lesser movies and it doesn't quite work. But when it's well done, there's nothing I love more than a character being like, I've been doing this all day. I've got it figured out. I think I've got it. Okay. <laughs> and they kind of have a little, she's, you know, like chalked or, or, or painted or markered on the floor and she's got the path all figured out. And, you know, like that is so... Right cool and i think it's also very it's a very winning character trait for her and there's something that is so plausible about it that feels like if my mom had discovered something like this and i came home and she kind of had it all this is maybe how she would do it and it just feels mm -hmm. very it's sort of selling the whole thing and the whole the way that our reality tips into this reality Absolutely. And so there's an interesting cut here between scenes that uh, I would like to talk about because reportedly they had to cut part of this scene because Di uh, Diane has been promising that they're going to get Pizza Hut afterward. And so in, <laughs> in his astonishment, Steve said something like, I hate Pizza Hut. <laughs> and, uh, and so Pizza Hut got angry and they had to cut that moment. <laughs> but <laughs> That's hilarious because it is. Yeah, I agree with you. There is a little bit of a you're like, did I miss something? Was this supposed to be, how motivated was this cut supposed to be? Right, but so here's the thing though, is that I think that with the dazed look on Steve's face, that is is what the focus is on right before this cut. I think it does actually still work as him like being in shock and just kind of like 
blacking out for a second as like Diane is explaining what's happening, especially based on the way that they're acting in the following scene where they are just babbling like loons when they go to ask the neighbor if he's experienced anything weird it's it's a funny scene but like they are just off their rocker in this moment yeah and i think there's something to you know the the way that diane has been interacting with this thing in the way that Steve is now, you know, he, again, like you said, in a lesser movie, he'd probably be like, you're being crazy. I have a big meeting tomorrow. I got to get to sleep. Like (laughs) he's, it takes him a a beat, but there's a reason that these people are together. You know, they're kind of on the same page and they both immediately start to feel not, not just freaked out, maybe a little freaked out, but also a little bit like, this is kind of cool. We've, we've settled into this routine and we're a little bit, these boring suburban people that we never thought we'd be. And like, we lived through this, the seventies man. And (laughs) then all of a sudden, you know, they start to have this thing that's happening to them and they kind of go like, this is kind of cool and unexpected. And, and, and you get that in the next scene where, as you said, they're almost, they're a little bit like high off of it. And that's definitely, I think what we're meant to, to, to believe from the neighbors that the neighbors right. sort of going like, Oh, these people are really weird or <laughs> high or whatever is kind of the, the comedic premise of that scene. And it's sort of, I don't know. It's fun. It's like really a fun, interesting, different way where it's sort of like at this moment, we're in a lot of different kind of Spielbergy. You're in suburbia, but a doorway has opened to the potential for something more. And it could kind of go in a bunch of different ways. It could kind of be like, this is just going to be, we're going to maybe go to a different fantasy world that exists through this closet, or we're going to, you know, aliens are going to come and we're going to be moving stuff around with our minds or what's going to happen. And it just so happens that they don't know it yet, but the version of that that they're in is like a terrifying uh, nightmare. But at this moment, it could, it could kind of go any any different way. It's, it's really effective, I think, the way that it kind of bounces back and forth between these lighthearted moments and the scarier stuff and so much of the setup things start coming back into play here i mean that night we see the kind of inverse of the how far away is the storm trick where like the lightning comes down and then you count how long before you hear the thunder and initially this is used as something to comfort robbie Mm. um, when he's scared of the storm the first night but this is reversed in a really interesting way when the storm is go- is raging outside again and they discover that it's actually moving closer. It's this encroaching storm coming towards them. And obviously this is metaphorical as well as literal. And I just think that the way that they use every sort of little piece of this movie to support later moments in it is just definitely part of what makes it so incredible. Oh yeah, no, I I completely agree. It also doesn't hurt that my dad told me the exact same thing when I was a kid about, you know, the thunder and and lightning. So that I think is extra effective uh, to me. Mm -hmm. The idea that then you're going like, okay, I feel good about this. But then it's like, what if it's not moving further away? You know, (laughs) Um, uh, what if you're just being like, oh God, it's getting really close. Super duper effective. And then a, 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 you know, as this movie does many, many times, brilliant use of, mundane things made scary or things that can shade into being scary in the right light used in that way. And, and when you were mentioning earlier that, you know, the tree is based off of an actual tree outside of Spielberg's house. when he was a kid that he was afraid of. That's like no surprise whatsoever. You feel that you feel that this is made by people who are going 
hey, remember when you were a kid and things were really, really scary? What if you were right? You know, is always, I think, such a great place to to start. Uh, and, and, and this movie shows that. Absolutely. And right he is, because in this moment, the scary tree comes alive and grabs <laughs> Rocky through the bedroom window, straight up tries to eat him. Um, it's absolutely like it's so shocking in this moment and then steve is off trying to rescue robbie and you know the family is is dealing with this but we see that it's sort of a distraction and carol ann is being sucked into the portal that appears in her closet and not only is i think it's a relatively scary scene just because you have a kid being literally devoured by a tree and he's like covered in blood but i also think that the aftermath when the family realizes that carol ann is missing and they're all panicking is really really scary and finally a bloody robbie hears her voice coming from the tv tuned to an empty channel and it's just immensely unsettling yeah that's such a good point i do think it is really the aftermath that makes it scary because you know that the the tree effects and stuff can could go a little cheesy for people or just the idea of like an evil tree as the scary thing but exactly what you said it's the fact that it's almost like this the evil force or forces or whatever are kind of throwing your attention so that they can steal carol ann is is really what is the scariest thing and that moment afterward it's it's when they're all running around and the mom's being like oh wait okay you found her oh wait you did oh no you didn't oh god like that moment i think that you know i'm i am i i don't have kids i've never had to have that terror what i could imagine just being an unbelievably terrifying moment of thinking maybe you have lost track of your kid but like her keeping thinking she's going to have that moment of relief and then not having it is so, ooh, so scary. And then having it exactly what you said, having the other kid. And I think this is that um, that kid's best moment, certainly in the movie, super effective of he's the one who's kind of realizing where she's gone is 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 yeah. is so effective. Yeah. And I think that um, while maybe less people have experienced the being a parent aspect of it, I think that. It's probably similar to a scare that a lot of people have felt in that, like, when you're a kid and you get separated from your parents and you think you found them and you grab them and it's the wrong person and you're like, you're not my mom and you look around and they're (laughs) gone, you know, sort of the the reverse of, of what's going on here. And it's, you know, being able to apply that level of being terrified to this I mean, it's it's a heartbreaking moment for Diane. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the in the realization that th- yeah, exactly. It it it's yeah. so scary, and the gen- then just you don't even get. It's also triply disturbing because you're like, she's in the fucking TV. <laughs> You, know? yeah, you don't get a relief. Like this is the first um, one where there's not an immediate relief yeah. from the scare. It, it's it's just great. And then a group of parapsychologists from UC Irvine, uh, Dr. Lesh, Ryan, and Marty come to investigate. Beatrice Strait in particular does an amazing job here as Dr. Lesh. She's great in network too. Just really, really great actor. And it's so funny hearing them be like propped up as the experts and you know you hear them bragging about watching a truck move nine feet in seven hours and then steve is just completely unimpressed as he opens the door to reveal a whirlwind of stuff going just absolutely buck wild such a great (laughs) such a great moment and yeah i agree with you that scene where they're where craig t nelson is enlisting their help 
it's cool that the movie goes right there, you know, like that it, that it's sort of, we've established like already earlier in the film that it's like, there's not really a whole lot of people you can call for this kind of thing. And then she is so great and has that kind of a weird, slightly otherworldly energy, but also has exactly the energy you want from when you are in a really scary situation. And there's somebody that's just going to come along and be like, I'm going to help you. It's going to be okay. But there's a little bit of that person inherently has a little bit of the ghost on them themselves. You know, they're a little bit spooky or a little bit weird, you know, like there's, there's that too. And it's, it's uh, so neat. And that, that scene is so great. And that, that the sort of like the fact that you don't really see, I think the reverse of, of Craig T. Nelson until the very end, uh, just really great camera blocking, just such a great Mm -hmm. scene. Tells you so much so fast. I agree. And basically what it boils down to is they determine that the Freelings are experiencing a poltergeist intrusion different from a haunting in that a haunting affects an area like a house as opposed to being associated with an individual. Uh, Duration is also a factor. But basically they say that since Carol Ann is the first birth in this community, she was born in this house, that's what her life force is what's attracting them. Um, And so that's what makes it a poltergeist. But I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to spoil part of this movie for people who haven't seen it already. You know, that's not the case. This whole title of this movie is a damn lie. We find out that it's because it was built on the the graveyard. And so it is a haunting, not a poltergeist the whole time. Yeah, that never feels fully resolved to me. You know, like I, I it almost feels like there were a couple of different versions of like pages flying around and it was a little bit the the eighties. So everybody didn't quite, you know, wasn't maybe yeah. fully keeping track. <laughs> yeah, ignore it. No one um, know. <laughs> uh, which is fine. You know, like I, I, that's always the least interesting and I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels this way. The least interesting part of any horror movie or anything like this is the big explanation. Right. And so it doesn't really bother me. Cause also I think it, it also underlines that these people don't really know what's going right. on. And there's also some, yeah, it, doesn't, wonderful, it doesn't actually bother me either. No, I know, but it is, you're right. And I did even watching it, revisiting it this time. I was like, wait, I thought a poltergeist was the house one. Cause this whole movie is the house, right? Wait, yeah. what? Um, but that said, this movie, I think, never, and, and, and this will very much be true later, it pulls off a neat trick where the more it explains stuff, it doesn't diminish the scariness for me. And it kind of yeah. serves you up exposition in these really great ways and does a lot of really neat sort of drawing your eye to different stuff. There's tons of great com, you know, comic relief in this scene. Mm. And this is where I think you get back into that kind of, hey, if there was a weird ghost in your house, part of it would be really scary. And then part of it would just be kind of weird and interesting and kind of a little bit fun. And you you get yeah. to see that these people are so focused on rescuing their daughter that everything else about their insane, crazy, um, haunted house is normal to them now. And they're just sort of, she's yeah. like, oh yeah, you'll, you know, you got to be quicker than that. Also, I don't know why that guy was trying to take a picture of a, a light flashing. Would that have been yeah. the least inspiring like, oh, picture look, of all on. time? <laughs> um, but, and then the, but the, the lens cap moment is so great, you know, that him yeah, realizing he still has the lens cap on and, and it's a nice, Again, don't want to keep bringing everything back to Spielberg, but he's he's involved in the movie. But this is also just a through line that a lot of good movies have, not just Spielberg movies. But when you're able to effectively intersperse 
you know, moments of levity with your thrills or scares or whatever else you're trying to achieve so much more effective because that's how life is. Life is not, no matter what you're going through, life is very rarely all one mood. Uh, Something will come along to break up that mood and it will make the ensuing horror or sadness or whatever that much more that. One other thing that I really like about sort of how this movie approaches the family dealing with this haunting is that while I think that it could be interesting, I think that the choice to sort of skip the testing moments is really smart because we we get to see, like we understand that they've been working at this for a long time, and you know we get to instead of see them slowly discover it when they when they're showing how they talk to Carol Ann, and it, there's just so much anguish from the family in this moment, and like you can see how much it hurts them that they've gotten this far and that this is sort of the the wall that they've reached now. They can't break through this one moment. They know she's there and knowing that she's there is almost worse because she's just out of reach. And, and you know, it's counterbalanced with this really nice scene where Dr. Lesh is talking to Robbie about ghosts and, you know, sort of the ethical dilemma that is inherent with like, oh, these people are being trapped here by some desire or another force or something. It's just, I think, a really good couple of scenes of like actual acting where it's like sometimes in horror movies that can fall by the wayside. Just, <laughs> they lose their focus and they just start being like, okay, throw scare after throw, uh, throw scare after scare after scare. But with this, because it, does have sort of that Spielbergy feel, you know, we do get the development of these characters in a way that really makes them feel like part of the story, which is not always the case. Sometimes they feel like they're just archetypes or someone that you could just slot in another warm body. And that I don't think that that's the case with this movie. Absolutely. And I, I one thing I was realizing watching it back this time is so much of this movie is actors just talking to a disembodied voice, you know, like there's somebody who is there, but is fully not there and somebody who is physically present, but not physically present at all. And it's so effective and you never would think it would be, you know, like nothing about filmmaking rules or anything would tell you that just pointing a camera at someone yelling at a person that they're trying to reach, but they can't see in a sort of, you know, almost like the radio or something is so emotionally effective. And I, I do think it really is a testament to the directing and, and the acting and the writing because it's so effective. It's, it's, it's so incredibly effective. And also I think that so much of, <laughs> even though I think this movie does a great job many times of showing rather than telling in terms of like, you know, Steve and Diane's relationship and and the way these characters are, it also has an incredible amount of just telling. We never get to see the other side. We never get to see exactly what it looks like. We just have to kind of imagine what Carol Ann is going through. And there's these descriptions and they're so short and evocative and emotional of what she's, you know, you get to have to imagine sort of what she's afraid of, but you know, she's really scared and it, it just cuts through everything so primally because it's a little kid and they're afraid and you see the mom just in, in, the, in, the, in the parents in, in, in anguish is so, so, so effective and nothing about, you know, the sort of bedrock rule of show, don't tell. And it's a visual medium would tell you that this would be as effective as it is. But I do think it's a testament to the power of acting and the power of, you know, especially I've never seen this in a movie theater, but 
why sometimes you should go see dramas on the big screen because seeing a great actor's emotions 30 feet high is mm-hmm. so incredibly compelling and that that it's a cliche, but that can be the best special effect money can buy um, <laughs> is so cool. And then I think too, I don't know, I I do think there's, there's so much about this movie, not to get to whatever with it, but like right now, I mean, you know, I don't know when people will be listening to this, but when George and I are recording this, it's like it is in the quarantine in the midst of the the, the pandemic and, and stuff in the spring of, of 2020. And if there's a different time period than this, absolutely let us know what it's like. We would love to know. Um, <laughs> but there is something very evocative or effective, I think, about this movie, particularly at this moment of this idea of being like, separated from people, but they're there, you know, I, I, I found that to be a little bit emotional at, at this moment, or it, it kind of hit me in a different way, I think. Yeah. And then also to the idea that like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that was, it's going to be true in so many different moments in this movie. Like the idea of like mm-hmm. having these actors just talking to this little kid's voice that was probably when they were actually shooting it, you know, the script supervisor, very, casually reading off, you know, between cigarettes, mommy, I'm scared, you know, and then it's just really a testament to, to, to the director and and to these actors. It's so great. It is. And I also really like that. It's not, they don't do this at the expense of scares though, because I mean, just the very next thing in the middle of the night, Ryan has some truly messed up hallucinations, including a steak crawling across the counter, then turning itself inside out, his food rotting and having maggots on it after he was eating it. He claws his own face off in the bathroom. And I mean, first of all, uh, maybe it looks a little uh, little goofy now, but I still think that it's relatively effective when you see the like drops of flesh like in the sink. Those still look great. And the hands are actually Spielberg's tearing at the fake face because they only had one copy of it. And so they were like, uh, we don't trust ourselves to not screw it up. <laughs> so if you do, if you mess it up, then you're the one who's responsible for it. As oh, wow. So, That's so crazy. Did it. Huh? Yeah. And, you know, I, I love, you know, certainly there are some CGI moments in it that maybe don't hold up perfectly, but there are plenty of practical effects in this as well that I think do hold up really fantastically. Uh, this crawling steak was done by using just a straight up real steak, which was laid over like a slot cut in the tile in the countertop. Uh-huh. And they just had two wires fastened to the bottom of it and just made it crawl like a a caterpillar underneath it from like an operator just hiding underneath the counter. This is sort of the similar thing to with the chairs, you know, it's just people creating this sort of set and, and uh, you know, setting things up onto the table or when they're moving it across the the floor um, it's someone with a wire underneath wobbling the, the chair and then dragging it across things that are simple, but really, really still work easier to look past some of the effects that maybe don't hold up quite as well. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, it's the fact that they're doing all of these different types of scares. So you never quite get to get comfortable or see, you know, literally, you know, see or figuratively rather the wires, you know, um, a little right. bit like like you can start to if 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 a movie has does similar tricks you know too many times i think is so great in the fact that like as a kid i think you always think you want to see the source of these things. You want to see the big bad, you know, what's causing all this stuff. We want to see into the evil world where all this stuff is happening with her. 
And it, it is, you know, it, from Jaws all the way to now, and it, it can be a little bit overblown, but there is something about not getting to see that and see where she is and just see the manifestations of it. And I, I think that can vary in effectiveness throughout the movie, how those manifestations manifest. Obviously, you know, different ones of them hold up in different levels. But I, I, I think like taken as a whole, the, the variety of scares and the variety, the way that this movie keeps you on your toes and the fact that the scariest thing, this this place where the living and the dead are, or the, the, the dead are realizing that they're dead and, and actually passing into death you don't actually really get to fully see. And when you do get to see these like souls, you're kind of only seeing them on grainy video, which, which is very effective is so cool. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of beautiful too, watching these uh, spirits like move around the house like that. And you sort of can put yourself in their shoes of like the fascination of watching it. You know, we're doing the same exact thing. We're staring at a screen, watching these lights move around and we're fascinated just as they are. Um, I agree. I think that it's really effective and, you know, it sort of plays on our knowledge of like, we know sort of what ghost movies and stuff look like. And, you know, it, it sort of leverages this knowledge of like, Oh, the little scribble meter. You know the one. It's scribbling. <laughs> yes. And like it stops being a thin line. And it turns into a wall of blue. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. And yeah, and I don't I don't, I don't want to brush past either. You you mentioned it, but I, I just to circle back to it for a second, um uh Dr. Lesh's uh monologue again about where she's, you know, talking to Robbie about, you know, ghosts and why people don't want to go to the other side and whatever. You know, we've seen it before and since, I think, so many times in in movies and explanations of ghosts and what are they and whatever. And on a just on a basic, you know, dialogue level, it's cool, but it's no, you know, it's fine, but it's not like it, 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 it's so much about her performance, I think, and selling the authority of being this person while she's also not as in your, as a kid, I feel like, or even as a grown up, not giving you a fully satisfactory answer. And she doesn't even fully right. know exactly why these things are the case. And I think that sort of speaks to the sort of central, you know, mortality theme of this movie of sort of going like, but wait, why is it like that? And why don't people know they're dead? And do they want to be dead or do they not? Or what, right. how, how aware are they? That is so inherently terrifying and is the kind of thing that when you're a kid and you first learn about death on up to literally today is the kind of thing that is the most, like, I think the most innate fear possible is just like, what happens? Why do we have to die? What happens afterward? so scary. And so there's something that I think is so effective about a a lot of that coming across in just this, this doctor giving this speech where she's not trying to be scary and say, Oh my gosh, it's so scary. She's trying to just explain it and say, this is what happens. And that is both a moment you get to catch your breath. And also a moment that I think like underpins a lot of the scariest stuff in in the movie yeah she's sort of this reassuring figure not only in that moment but in the next morning when they're sending the kids and the dog away to keep them safe like she hugs diane and and promises that she's coming back and it's like a really nice moment where diane is so relieved to have someone who not only believes them but is willing to try and help you know Dr. Lesh sort of acting as this warm light for them to feel reassured by in the, in this moment of pure unknown. Yeah. 
I, I think is a really integral character, and the fact that she does such a great job is hugely important to this movie. Absolutely. So uh, they send the kids away, and Steve's boss comes to check on him because the excuse that they've given is that he has the flu. His whole family does. That's why Carol Ann is not in school as well. And so in conversation, it's revealed that Cuesta Verde was built where an old cemetery was once located. But he, his, his boss says basically that they moved it, and it's not a big deal. It was only, it's only going five minutes away. And I, I think that this is, it's an interesting moment and sort of this like – Steve is upset by it, but he's also like, I guess, like, it's not it's not so bad if it's only five minutes away. Like, you know, he, like, justifies it to the spirits around him, <laughs> which I, I think is a, a fun moment. But, I mean... Obviously, it, it presages the whole kind of, again, the sort of, I think, like, second most you know, influential kind of cultural meme moment of this movie of, you know, you move the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies that this kind of calls forward to or sets up this moment where he's, where Craig T. Nelson is, is on the hill with his boss to me is weirdly one of the, as, as Zelda Rubenstein will say, this house has many hearts. One of the hearts of this movie is movie has many hearts. Um, Cause you know, again, there it's daytime. They're standing. It's this beautiful day. It's a beautiful suburb. You know, it's it's uh, Reaganomics is 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 killing it. Everybody's got money. Obviously, that's not true. We know that now. They're but at the time, pool. everybody's exactly everybody's <laughs> loving it. Um, and and so everything is 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 beautiful in in the midst of uh is it shakespeare i don't know is it the bible in the midst of life we are in death you see you mm, reverse indeed. shot there it's the fucking graveyard you know and right. and uh, to me the thematic heart of this movie is when craig robinson craig robinson jesus christ although i would watch that remake um <laughs> when 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 Craig T. Nelson says, you know, how could anyone have a problem on a day like today? Mm-hmm. I think that's so like important, that kind of, you know, it's beautiful, it's sunlit, it's suburbia, but you're still inside of life and the opposite of life is death and it's fucking terrifying. And it can, the most terrifying thing is that it can happen at any time. And I, I think part of the reason that this movie you know, still resonates with me so much is to, 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 um, to get personal for a moment. When I was, uh, my mom passed away when I was like an adolescent, like 12 years old and she had been sick for a long time on and off. So it wasn't entirely unexpected, but when it finally did happen, it was some, somehow somewhat unexpected to me as a kid. Right. And obviously like sad and terrifying and scary. And I remember, feeling like that night when you go and it's like, Oh, the fuck the Simpsons is on the Simpsons is on at six and six thirty, syndicated the way it always is. And having that feeling of like, Oh, the world is just still going. Right. Even though my, my life is, is shattered. And in the midst of that, everything else is still just occurring is tremendously resonant to me. And it's still very resonant about this movie and this idea that you can be inside your life and, this anxiety, this thing that never goes away. You can, you can be as safe and suburban and, and, you know, regonomical as, as you want to, it never goes away. And then I do think too, um, 
the other thing that is a, a, a thematic heart of this movie in this scene and is get, goes a little bit back to Jaws and stuff like that. And I do think is, you know, I don't want to be tacky, but it is very resonant right now to me in a, in a, in a genuine way when his boss says, it's just people. Yeah. You know what well. I mean? <laughs> You're just like, and it is, it is, it's, it's, it's the, it's the mayor in Jaws just wanting to keep the beach open. Cause it's a big tourist weekend. Yeah. You know, it's just people that that's all is, is it's hair cutters in Texas. <laughs> exactly. And that, that to me is the, is again, is a big part of the sort of like, I guess a little bit, it's, this movie's not political, but, but is a almost political statement that resonates with me at this, at this moment and is kind of, you know, you see that in great, you know, film villains in just about every James Cameron movie, you know, the corporate baddie who is just like, it's just people, it doesn't matter, you know, and that, and that to me is right. the, that's obviously we'll learn the sort of the original sin that creates all the other badness that happens and, and, and blows back on, on everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about it on episodes uh, in particular about Larry Cohen on this show, where sort of movies that have this message that is just vague enough that it can be applied sort of forward facing as well um where his movies have a very anti-authoritarian bent to them where mm. every every politician and cop <laughs> and everyone is corrupt and, and like just so such a negative opinion of how everyone is trying to step on the little guy and so you know it's made in the early 70s and it doesn't matter because these sort of themes still apply to today's society and that makes it even if it's not necessarily and uh and overtly like i'm talking about this moment in politics right now it does feel political because of sort of just the way that our society is shaped right now yeah um, absolutely so I, I think that it's really interesting and i i, I agree with you i think the fact that it is it's it's weirdly the fact that it's so kind of general that allows it mm-hmm. to it, to uh, exactly what you said that that allows it to still kind of uh, resonate today absolutely is 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 you know it it it's great yeah it really is and the hits just keep on coming with this movie because in rolls <laughs> yes, Cantina yes, yes. Barons. <laughs> oh oh my god uh, she's so great she's a spiritual medium played by Zelda Rubenstein uh, she was only on set for six days, but what a performance. She Absolutely. just totally owns the screen when she's on it. <laughs> Super iconic. Um, she says that the ghosts inhabiting the house are not at rest and they're attracted to Carol Ann's life force and that her light is a distraction from the real light that would let the spirits cross over and that Carol Ann is being held there by a dark presence she refers to as the beast to stop them. And I mean... God, just the minute she's like, it's the beast. And you're like, oh my God, oh. what? Like, is it just a demon? Is it the, like the devil? Like, is who knows? Oh man, it's just great. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's so much, again, this is a, such a, such a testament to a, her as an actress, but also just a testament to execution in general, because you see this done in horror movies and in sci-fi movies and stuff all the time that the exposition dump 
Because that's all that's going on here is just her sort of reading, literally reading the room and then kind of just delivering <laughs> her sort of here's what's going literally going on in this thing that we cannot see. And it's so tonally effective. It's so, you know, the way it's delivered is just it just sells it and it just makes it so much scarier. And that's when I was saying earlier what I was realizing rewatching it this time that it's like this is the rare movie that does not get less scary as it explains things more to you it somehow finds yeah. a way to still find new levels of 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 being scary and it's all down to this moment i feel like in 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 the way she unfolds it where she you know she's like to her it's just another child or whatever so you're like what Ugh. could be scarier than that <laughs> you know like that idea that it's like oh she wouldn't know the difference it's just another kid to her is just so right effective. the level of deception oh. there. yeah you know, and also too, not to get, I don't know, it's, I, you know, whatever, or I guess to get the, something, but like, you wouldn't, it, again, it's, it's corny to say you would never see this in a movie today, but like the idea that so much of this is anchored by these two older female actors who, mm-hmm. you know, are so different but are both allowed to be themselves and to be completely different characters and are so effective in so many different ways, but are kind of serving some of the same roles, but also very different roles. And they're kind of a team. You, I don't think you would see that. You know what I mean? Like sadly right. in a movie today, I think it would be like, well, we got this one, we got, you know, so-and-so and they're going to be really great. And they're kind of holding down the older actress thing. If you even have that. And so I right. think that it's so it's neat to see, you know, both of these, these, you know, not 22 year old female actresses get to like do their thing so completely and are, are both. So the like hearts of the, of the movie and what's scary about it in many ways, way more right. so even than a, than a crawling uh, stake. Right. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're really <laughs> given the space to work and I, I agree. I think that that's really an admirable thing that they do in this movie. And it, not only is it to the movie's credit, but I think that it benefits the movie immensely because they do just such a great job with it. So um, you know, it, it definitely pays off. And the assembled group discovers that the entrance to the other dimension is through the bedroom closet while the exit is through the living room ceiling. And for the single listener who gives a shit, <laughs> this sort of wormhole where the two spaces intersect at the same point is called a Riemannian cut. So there you go. <laughs> oh, how about that? <laughs> and they pass a rope through the portal to uh, enable them to find their way out. And Diane goes in after Carol Ann, but I, this moment where Diane is like, let me go in after her. And Tangina is like, you've never done this before. <laughs> she says, neither of you. And she like thinks about it. And it's like, you're right. Just so, Ugh. so good. A really great moment. And she goes in, but Steve, who's the one who's anchoring this rope, doesn't follow the instructions exactly. And so a giant demon emerges from the closet. <laughs> and it, this face is just so shocking, the way that it just takes up this entire area out of nowhere. It's so great. And you, it's quick, too, because Tangina drives it back in. But... You know, it's it's enough that you're you're shook and things start happening all over the place. Carol Ann and Diane drop from the ceiling in the living room. People are trying to deal with what they've just seen. It's a, a really hectic moment uh, following up what has been up to this point. Like you said, a lot of dialogue. It's effective, but it is much more slow paced than sort of this frenetic energy that's sort of unleashed in this moment. Yeah, and it, it exactly. And it, it it's all... 
when you think about it, it was so cool watching this because again, it is like other than the giant face, you know, so much of what's happening here is like, oh, they had a rope with some wire in it so they could hold it up and it looks like it's emerging from a wormhole and they got some strobe lights and they have the same mist effect and laser effect going as, as from the Michael Jackson Don't Stop Till You Get Enough video from 1979 <laughs> or whatever. And it's right. so effective. It's so effective. And that's and then, and then again, it tricks your brain into being like, this is all they're doing. And so you don't see it coming when there's a giant practical demon head that emerges from the right. closet. You know, it's so cool. So it cool. It really is. And so much I think comes from this, this moment. And I think like in it culturally and, and the kind of we're doing a balance of sort of like, yes, there's this demonic weird force, but we're also kind of looking into it with science and, and there's so there's this kind of, obviously there were things that, that predated this, that we're doing that. But I think there's, it, it, it's so such a cool, important, neat moment and tonally and texturally all that stuff is is so cool and helps it feel more plausible somehow. And I don't know, it's just, you know, it, it again, all my points just lead to it's great. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not wrong. And I mean, it's really nice having sort of this relief moment where they're unconscious and covered in ectoplasm and Diane has a new gray streak, but. <laughs> Carol Ann is back. Diane yeah. is there. They're recovering. Tangina declares the house is now clean. It's like a very satisfying moment. Um, but I think that because this moment is so satisfying, you know, when they're the next morning, the they're packing up to get the hell out of there, and Steve goes to quit his job, and Di and Dana goes on a date. But the first, like you, you're watching this, and you're like, okay. It's seeming like it's going on a little too long, considering things seem to have been wrapped up. And you start to get this unease creeping back into you, even during these uh, like sort of happy moments where they're all like, we've done it. Problem solved. The house is clean. Like, they're all happy. They feel like the, the, the terror has passed. And the longer that we see them acting this way, the more scared we are because we know that this wouldn't be happening if there wasn't something else coming down the line. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I even had, I was like, I think there's other scary stuff that happens in this movie. I'm pretty sure I was in that moment. I was like, but right, there's more. So that's not, you know, I, I remembered, I was like, oh, right. Okay. You know, yeah. it's a little bit, and it is so effective. I can imagine if you were seeing it for the first time, like in the theater, when it came out, maybe, and you can't like see your watch and you don't have a cell phone because it's 1982. There's part of you that's going like, is this over? And then exactly that, where it's just like, we're cutting back to Carol Ann one too many times for anyone to get too comfortable. I feel like. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're cutting back to Carol Ann and also the camera lingers on that damn clown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Robbie wakes up and he sees that it's gone. And like, for real, this is, I feel like, the worst of all worlds because you have a living doll and a killer clown and you've just combined them into one thing. And I'm just like, this is really like the distillation of so many people's fears. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, and as another another weird touchstone for me for this movie that I feel like especially as a kid was my grandparents, when I would go stay with them in, the, in like their guest room, it's like had just a creepy clown doll in a chair where you are like, what was the generational dividing line where that went from being, 
like cute to creepy. I don't know, yeah. but it it, it was know. definitely we were definitely existing, you know, on the precipice of it, and it was really scary. So yeah, super duper effective. And, and I mean, not only is it missing, but the beast in this moment now launches its ambush. The clown drags Robbie under the bed, and Diane is attacked in her room by an unseen force. That I mean, this the dragging and sort of violence that's happening against Diane feels very sexualized. It's like like tearing at her and, you know, her shirt is moving and it's like throwing her up and down on the bed and it starts dragging her up the wall and over the ceiling in the room. And this this effect is so incredible. It looks so good. They had a static camera and literally just rotated the whole ass set. Oh wow. <laughs> and so so like she had to time her roles to make it look the way that it does, but it's so effective. I, like, I feel such fear for her in this moment of, like, getting just thrown around the room like this. Yeah, really, really scary. The, like, the the sexual stuff, it didn't, it wasn't quite, you got the sense that it was, like, in a different movie, this could go a different way. There was, like, a hint yeah. of it in a way that was a little bit, like, you could feel like if you were seeing it in a theater full of, like, drunk teens might get a laugh, but you do feel like the intention is for it to be scary and 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 yes. and and serious and 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 scary to her and i i agree i think the effect is is very the 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 rolling around the room effect is very effective and i've seen it several times and it's still sort of like you're like you know you can figure how they do it like we've all seen or at least people of my age saw the like virtual insanity Jamiroquai, you know, behind the, behind the <laughs> video making the video but like it's still so effective and she just sells the shit out of it yeah, she does. I mean, there's a similar one, and I think one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. It might even mm. be the first one, but like, it, you know, this sort of thing, it, it takes such effort that like it really just boggles your mind when you're seeing it. Absolutely. Um, and so the beast forces Diane to the backyard and it drags her into the swimming pool where just corpses and coffins erupt from the ground and they're like encumbering her in a way that she starts getting like dragged down into the water and joe beth claims that the skeletons that attacked her on set were in fact real skeletons this allegation is supposedly backed up by makeup artist craig reardon who said that the real corpses were cheaper to purchase than plastic ones back in the day but i could not find an actual quote attribution so <laughs> take that with a grain of salt <laughs> i mean and, um yeah it's uh they're really scary they sure are but what's also interesting about this moment is that not only are they very scary this claim is what led to rumors of an actual curse on the book uh, which we'll get to in a little bit but you know it's sort of it all hinges on this moment and it even if it's just what they told her to like make it more scary for her it's effective. I think that the idea of it being real skeletons is pretty scary. I think that if I was being accosted by them. Oh, absolutely. And you just think about like, cause I was thinking about it just in terms of the character, but like you think about like being in water with corpses ugh, and ugh. it's getting in your mouth. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah. It's so, it's so great. <laughs> it's so creepy. Yeah. And, and again too, just like the way that this movie kind of takes different slices of the horror pie where you're getting yeah you're getting some ghosts and you're getting some blood and you're getting some maggots and some face ripping and you're getting some skeletons coming up off the ground it really is like even though it kind of 
throws you off at the beginning and being like, Poltergeist actually isn't a haunted house. It's a haunted person or whatever. Right. You really, there is, they are really playing the the haunted house theme in many ways by having all of these different types of scares throughout, I think. Yeah. And there, I think it's also interesting that so many of the scares happen in different areas of the house. Yes. Like a haunted house. You know, you, you sort of move from area to area and uh, and you get a different jump in each different spot. So um, I, I think that that is a really interesting point as well. And she's screaming in this pool and she's trying to claw her way out. But thankfully, the neighbors hear her. They, they despite having, uh, you know, not been on the best of terms, they help her out. She manages to climb out of the pool and she goes back to the house. And I really like this moment as well, where the hallway stretches as she yes. like, limps and then runs down it in her rescue attempt. I mean, that's an effect I can always get behind. Mm -hmm. I love impossible geometry stuff. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite books of all time is House of Leaves. It's absolutely incredible. It's so scary. And basically the idea of like a house being bigger on the inside than it possibly could be when you look at it, like something about that just really chills me. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. It's so, uh, oh yeah, it's, it's great. And again, it's like, the most classic little effect, you know, but mm -hmm. it, so it works so well in this moment. Absolutely. And she, she makes it down the hallway. She bursts into the children's room and she finds that this closet has become the gaping maw that you sort of uh, alluded to earlier, <laughs> trying to uh, suck the children in as revenge for foiling the plan. And oh. it looks great. Totally practical. Just looks absolutely spectacular. No kidding. And I mean, I think um, if people haven't, I think if anybody's listening to this, they've probably seen the movie, but I was obviously like, I, I, you know, like the TV show uh, Stranger Things, but if anybody likes the TV show Stranger Things, you have to see this movie because it is oh, obviously yeah. Stranger Things really very proudly wears its, its kind of 80s Spielberg-y influences on its sleeve. But I was even having seen this movie a lot and having seen Stranger Things very like... So I, I even I was surprised by how much it directly is, you know, referencing poltergeist and a lot of the visual language and the sort of yeah. creepy, weird biological elements that start to occur with the um, the portals and stuff and the other side and everything or the upside down in Stranger Things case was so it was neat to see that and I'll just really effective uh, effects work on that sort of mm -hmm. creepy, you know, that that production design is just so, so, so effective and cool and still looks great. I totally agree. And you know, this moment that you mentioned in the, in the photo happens where she's rescuing the children. She's holding on to them. Uh, it's, it's a really nice moment of teamwork, making the dream work there as they all hold on to each other. <laughs> and, uh, they escape to the outside only to have more rising coffins and rotting corpses. You know, the, it continues in their house, their yard, throughout the neighborhood. It's really scary. Again, this sort of reminds me of The Invitation, where, like, it's scary enough when this happens in one isolated spot. But then when you realize that this is happening all over the neighborhood uh, and, you know, by extrapolation in The Invitation, all over the world, the country, mm -hmm. whatever the hell it is, it's really, like... That quick scaling up of the problem, I think, is very effective in being like, oh, this is a big damn deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. No, for sure. And, and the, the feeling that you have nowhere to go, you know, like it's yeah. not just if I can get out of this one haunted area, I'll be OK. It, exactly what you said. It, 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 it's yeah, just just cool. And then I think to the sort of my like, I guess, kind of 
sci-fi e brain just immediately goes to like, what happened afterward? You know, what was the explanation? <laughs> what was the official take on, you know, who, you know, the, the, the sure. is, is <laughs> how did this real estate company justify this? Um, cause like jets of flame are shooting out the house. That's the thing. There's a literal pillar of flame, pillar of flame, <laughs> The house, also the house eating itself. Effect. Sorry, maybe I'm getting ahead of it, but but uh, it's so effective. Yeah, well, so all, basically all that happens in the interim is that yes. this moment that you sort of mentioned earlier where Steve confronts his boss about realizing that rather than actually relocating the cemetery for the development, they just moved the headstones and left the bodies there. And so this, this moment of realization is not only de- uh, delivered very effectively, but... When we realize that's what's happening as well, you're like, it's just so like, oh my God, cutting corners. Of course, like this is like a business thing that like, mm-hmm. it just all really, I feel like clicks together in terms of like realizing what has happened to this family. Yes. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I, I, I don't even know if I would ever if I ever watched it without knowing on some level the sort of you move the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies, the, you know, meme uh, almost. Mm-hmm. But yeah, still so effective and, and, and just in that moment and very satisfying, you know, getting to see Craig T. Nelson kind of right. stick it to, to the to the boss in that moment is is super fun. And then I think also too, on a screenwriting level, it's like, it's not the kind of thing that you ever, that I don't think you like need to fully for it to click in consciously, probably better if it doesn't, but just like thinking about it since we're overthinking it for a podcast and that's, what's fun about it. You know, seeing at the beginning when there's the sort of initial poltergeist attack and the family by design, because the poltergeist did this, scatters in a million directions. And then that's when Carol Ann gets taken. And then seeing here at the end, you know, that's the way that Diane and the kids are able to escape is they kind of stick together. You know, they they work together and, and, and pull out and then you know Craig T Nelson sure arrives is. and then <laughs> and then gets them out of there but I love also too the way that they they don't let you catch your breath really in this scene like mm-hmm. even once they're out of the house we still have to see him like look for his keys and is it the right one right. and it's just like they don't they they ring every bit of 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 tension out of it that they possibly can with the simplest stuff and I I really appreciate that Absolutely and I mean as they're fleeing the shit is still popping off not there's this pillar of flames that we mentioned cars are flipping and as you (laughs) pointed out the house literally implodes into the portal to the astonishment of onlookers yes (laughs) and this was this was actually done with a six foot scale model that took four months to build they tested all kinds of ways to implode the house but finally just settled on thick cables that were threaded through it and they literally just pulled it into a funnel attached to a high-powered vacuum this model costs $25,000 to build. Uh, it is supposedly still put together and assembled on Steven Spielberg's piano. So wow, that I thought was fun. Oh, yeah. that's very cool. And then we should say in this moment too, I think maybe before the house fully disappears, but truly one of the great, because you see people attempt this this moment in movies so often, but when Dana, the, the daughter arrives, you know, back home and just looks at everything and just says what is happening <laughs> is so effective such a great moment from her you know such a great performance right oh just what a what a perfect shot yeah everything it's great because it is you know that's kind of a laugh but it also is just like yeah what is happening you know like yeah. oh 
Great. Yeah, it, it would definitely be shocking. She literally in the morning was just like, bye, we're done. I'm I going know. on a date. <laughs> oh. And then you drive up. What is happening? Uh, it's great. It's great. And, you know, the family, they do get away. They're exhausted. They check into a hotel for the night. And Steve rolls the TV outside into the walkway. Finally, free of the beast. Great, great ending. And it's it's a very satisfying conclusion, I feel like, where... You know, as far as I'm concerned, seeing it implode into it into the the funnel like that or the the portal and they're leaving, I'm like, great, good for you, just go. <laughs> like, oh yeah, in the way they're all so tired mm-hmm. is just so believable. You know, you just it is. you just buy it. It you you're with them. You feel that. I mean, yeah, great last shot. I think that's one of the even though there's been many year gaps between me seeing this movie, I always remember that shot. You know, it's so. So great. And it is kind of, again, like I said, I think this sort of like anti-TV social commentary could be a little bit overstated in this movie, but such a perfect little through line, you know, to start right. with the TV signing off and then to see him push. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's again, it's the kind of thing where as a, as a storyteller or a screenwriter, you're just, you're green with envy at that, <laughs> at that idea and at that execution. And that it worked. Absolutely. <laughs> that oh, it's yeah. not, totally. it's not silly and no. over, the, over the top. Um, I, I agree. I think that it's really, a, it's a nice cap. Oh, and then I watched this time when I was kind of gathering my thoughts after I was finishing watching the movie, I let it play through to the very, very end. And mm-hmm. there isn't a post-credit stinger, but there is something that I found to be much creepier, which is when you get to the end of the credits, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. They laugh, right? Oh God. Yeah. There's like creepy. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, it's like this cue from the movie where it's like, everything's back to normal and it's from the beginning of the movie. And I think it's called like Carol Ann's theme or something. And then, yeah, there's all this like like, a lullaby kind of thing. Creepy little kid laughing at the very end. And it Mm -hmm. goes on for a really long time. Yeah, it's it's Ooh. very creepy. And I think that not only does that creepy sort of lead it going out, you know, like I said, there is this supposed curse that surrounds it where, you know, it's the spookiness sort of leaps off the silver screen. There are a trio of untimely deaths associated with this movie. Dominique Dunn, who plays Dana Freeling, was strangled by her former boyfriend in the driveway of her house um, just a few months after the release of the movie. Really brutal. She was uh, declared dead five days later because she was actually brain dead first. Really just awful stuff. Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann died at just 12 years old um, after developing a bowel blockage. And she died despite having no prior symptoms of this. Um, but she, she was diagnosed with stenosis of her intestines, which is kind of like when uh, when the intestine itself like narrows and that's where the, the blockages come from. But this is a congenital disease. And, you know, at 12 years old, you would think that she would have uh, exhibited some symptoms prior to that. And Ugh. so doctors are really kind of baffled by this sort of out of nowhere disease and then this continues to strike with the bizarre deaths as recently as april fools 2009 although this is not a joke lou perryman the guy who sticks his head in the window uh, and drinks the coffee was killed with an axe by a 26 year old in austin texas oh my gosh yeah just like 
all of these violent or unexpected deaths that are associated with it has definitely led people to sort of view the movie itself as like a cursed production, uh, which I think is interesting. It's definitely unfortunate for all these people. I would certainly rather them have not died, but you know, it does sort of lend this interesting aura to the movie. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely heard about it. It is, you know, it's so super, super sad and also is the kind of thing that is it's genuinely scary because it's a scary movie. So, you know, it it, it kind of like it, it, it is... And it's dealing with the unknown. Exactly. It's so much of like, well, it's probably nothing. Right. But. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, exactly. And it, and it, yeah. Oh yeah. I, 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 I just put that together when you were talking about the Dominique Dunn, I was aware that, you know, she had been uh, murdered and then I just put that, I, I don't know how I forgot about that, but yeah. Oh, horrifying. Sure is. Sure is. Um, At the end of the day, it's, it's an incredible, incredible movie. DC, this is now the part of the show where we sort of summarize what makes this the best horror movie ever. Um, and so I'll let you kick it off for us. Uh, you know, really just sort of let's, uh, we just bring it all into uh, a quick little list of, of why this is the best for us. Sure. Um, I, well, I, I've expounded at length, so I'll try to be as quick as possible. I mean, I think, you know, obviously I'm not breaking any new ground here, but when horror movies can take, the mundane and make it scary. That's obviously the scariest because we are the most steeped in the mundane every day. And this movie does that over and over again. And the way that it kind of uses the haunted house genre to sort of make every part of this very, one thing I meant to touch on that I really liked, or that I think was kind of breaking new ground with this movie at the time. And is, is, is goes into why it's so great is that, you know, most haunted house movies, it's this idea of, there's this old specific house, you know, the Amityville house. Mm. And it's got those specific, that little architectural, you know, those windows that are like eyes or it's, you know, an old Gothic mansion that was owned by such and such. And it's got this history to it. And what's so scary, I think about this movie is it's that, but for sort of like prefab suburban housing that is by its nature, character free. That's almost promising you no history here, folks, you know, like, don't worry right. about I mean, it. They say um, in the movie, they say that I can't tell one house from another. Exactly. And so the idea that you would have, even in that you can't escape, you know, you, you can't get far enough away from the unknown, um, by trying to, you know, raise a bunch of crappy Adobe walls <laughs> is, is, is very, um, not Adobe, but like, you know, uh, drywall. Uh, I mean, is and it appeals to me very specifically also from growing up in that kind of suburbia and and still uh, i guess feeling like ooh you know is there is there more here you know what what's going on and so so i love that I, I, I love all the performances. I, I just think there's so many great different types of scary things and I do think it more effectively than any other movie I can think of really plays with the idea of, and the vocabulary of childhood fear. And that is the scariest in many ways. It, you know, the the sort of, it's when most of us, even if we learn to not be afraid of the things that we were afraid of, that's still in many ways, like, you know, the scariest we can feel is that sort of being a kid, not knowing what's happening, feeling out of control, 
Um, right. and, and so is, is, is super duper effective and just well shot, well scored all the, all the ticks, all the boxes tens across the board. And also you could show it to a, a particularly, I think like if they're ready for it, 11, 12, 13 year old, because again, it's not uh, super duper R rated, crazy gory. It just is like right on that edge of tipping between childhood fear and adulthood fear. And, uh, and also just all the mortality stuff I think is, 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 is super great, super well-treated and in, in many ways is dealing with some of the most elemental fears, uh, possible. So for that reason, Poltergeist is the best horror movie of all time. I think that you've sort of touched on something really interesting in the idea that you could show this to someone who's maybe a little bit younger because, it's, I think it's so fascinating that this is an effective and satisfying horror movie with a body count of zero. Yes. Nobody dies point. in this movie. That's a great point. Which I think is, like, I can't think of anything else that does that. Even just by virtue of, like, usually there's one to establish stakes. And right. this has a very real fear that it, it just permeates the whole movie, but it doesn't rely on this. There's no one who feels like they were just shunted into the script to provide a body. These are characters that we grow to enjoy spending time with. We like them. They're great performances. And we get the enjoyment of watching them go through this awful, awful experience and make it out the other side. I think that the fact that they are still all together makes it such a satisfying ending and possibly is some of that Spielberg influence. You know, it, it feels like a very happy ending, but still has all these great, great, genuinely scary moments that, you know, maybe some of the CGI doesn't hold up perfectly, but some of the practical uh, stuff I think is still great. A lot of the scares that are a little more ethereal instead of like, I'm looking at something scary really, really work still. And, and yeah, to me, that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. DC, this was <laughs> so much fun. I want to thank you so much for coming on and tell them where they can find you. Oh yeah, sure. Um, if you liked hearing me talk into a podcast microphone, I have a weekly podcast uh, called Stay for Dinner that is about um, home cooking and everything that food and, and cooking are related to, which is everything. So whether you like cooking or you don't like it, uh, still check it out because I, I think there's there's something for everybody. And I think cooking is also uh, a lot of people are doing it right now that never thought they would be doing it. So I, I even I conceived of the show a while ago and I, I wanted it to be a place where people could go and maybe get it a little bit more demystified for them. So right. um, check it out if that sounds at all uh, interesting to you. And, and the time is definitely ripe. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I am. I wrote two books, as you mentioned, The Boy Who Couldn't Sleep and Never Had To and Crap Kingdom. And both are very kind of steeped in this, as you heard on the show. I'm super steeped in it. I love it a lot. The kind of Spielberg-y, suburban kind of, you know, there's something more out there kind of coming of age, you know, sci-fi adventure thing. So if you, if you like that stuff, you'll, you'll probably like them. Also, if you like listening to stuff, uh, I read both of them in audiobook form. So you can get those on audible or, or, or what have you. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash DC Pearson. And I'm on Instagram at D E E C E E Pearson because I joined Instagram in 2019. So everything good was taken. <laughs> 
little too late to get uh, just straight up DC <laughs> yes, Pearson, I exactly. imagine. <laughs> yeah, I think like David David Christian Pearson might have jumped on that one. Damn you, David Christian. I know. <laughs> the chosen one. Uh, definitely go check DC out at all those places. The podcast is great. Go buy his book. Support the man. And you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. You can find the show on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. But we also have a website now, littlehorrorphl.com. You can find the show itself on there if you don't feel like listening to it on a podcast app for some reason. Um, <laughs> you can also find all the links to all the social places. Um, you can find a link to the store there. And uh, yeah, so go check that out. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes because it really helps us out. And it gets it in front of new ears, which is always lovely. So that would be great. Um, that's it for me, DC. I want to thank you again for coming on. And, My pleasure, uh, man. Thank say, you for having me. Yeah. All right. Bye everyone. Bye.